Again, my name is Peter Payne. Back uh, on the table back there is a clipboard. Uh, you can put your name and email address on there if you'd like the PowerPoint. Uh, I'm also doing some writing, so uh, if you, you put just email, you put PowerPoint only if you want. Um, but I'm working on uh, several essays right now, and I'll send those out as they, as they get done. So if you'd like to have that, plus when I go to Europe, I'll give updates on our time there. So you'll get that. But if you don't want that, you can just put uh, PowerPoint only. The I don't need God was a topic that came to me, or actually got thinking about it from an all-Germany Easter conference we were in. My wife and I were in this last year. And there was a seminar on tough questions. And the person who was leading the seminar asked the students who were there what questions they wanted to address. He, he put down about eight questions. Then they had a vote on which ones had the strongest interest. Well, the one that got the most votes was the question, how does one respond to somebody who says, I don't need God? I mean, is that just a conversation stopper? <laughs> it don't, don't go anywhere from that? Uh, and so I started thinking, you know, I, that, that could it'd be interesting. So I decided to put together a seminar. So this is the, the result of it. Uh, the question is, do you know uh, anyone who has told you, I don't need God? Or are you pretty sure they have the attitude, I don't need God? And then what lies behind that? So turn to someone near you and uh, ask, uh, do you know someone who said, I don't need God? Or you're pretty sure that's the attitude they have. And if so, do you have an idea as to where that's coming from? Why they say that? So get, get close to someone else and uh, just uh, talk for a couple minutes. Okay, you can probably keep going for a while, but uh, let me get your attention back up here again. So uh, who did you mention? Uh, what do you think, the people you met? Anybody said to you, I don't need God. Well, two of the people that we've mentioned, they, they didn't grow up ever learning about God. Okay. And they were brought up to be very good people. Uh-huh. So they really feel like um, they're a good person. I'm a good person. And I don't need God. They even, I was telling Hannah, they kind of represent, it's almost like uh, they use a, a check mark. It's not checked by their name. They're, I'm a Christian. So that's held against them because by Christians because they're not a Christian. And yet they feel they live just as good of a life as us. And they're referring to the people who view religion as basically being a value if it helps you become a more moral person. So if religion helps you with that, no matter what you believe, that, that's good. And they sort of see that as the value and purpose of religion to sort of help people be nicer and kinder and more honest. Uh, but they'd often say, well, I have these values anyway. And I don't believe in God, and hence I don't need to believe in God to be a good person. Anything else? Yeah. I have a brother-in-law, and I believe that if he had trauma as a young child, and how can the church of loving God allow the drug driver to kill my mother? Yeah, so there's the whole uh, uh, problem of evil and suffering, why would God allow somebody like this to happen? Plus, uh, it's, it's, it was personal, it's, God, how could you allow this to happen? And there's a, a seminar that I give on why does God allow so much evil and suffering that I'm asked to give quite a bit when I'm traveling around Europe. But yeah, I mean, it can be, uh, it may, may be a situation where they prayed fervently for something and they felt God, God didn't come through. So I don't need God. He didn't do anything for me. I don't need him now. Okay. Would you make a distinction between 
That's a good question. Sometimes people say, I don't need God because I don't believe he's there. I don't need fairy tales. I can live with the truth. I don't need to invent something to help me feel good. Fervent atheist, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very sure that he's an atheist, and you know, we were just talking. I'm like, well, you know, you don't. I, I think you need God to be moral, you know. Like he's like, no, I can be moral without God. And I'm just like, how in the world? <laughs> and I started um, doing some research on apologetics in general. Mm-hmm. I ran across a guy named Frank Turek. You ever heard of Christ's mm-hmm. enemy? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, you know, God is the standard of good. You know, anything outside of God. Where, where are you getting your standards from if you're saying you're moral? You know, how, how can you say Hitler is, is not a good guy or he is a bad guy if you don't have a standard to go off of? Like, yeah, so we'll, we'll come back to the question of uh, relativity in ethics and morality. Uh, and atheists can choose to embrace quite upstanding moral values. And there are some atheists who actually, how they live their lives, are more moral uh, than a lot of Christians are. So in that sense, yeah, a person can be an atheist, but say, how, how do you justify it? Uh, that becomes a, a more difficult, a difficult question. So I'll actually come back to that a little bit. Yeah. Right, there's a philosopher I'll make mention of later on in the talk, Thomas Nagel, uh, who is an, is an adamant atheist. Uh, at the same time, he thinks naturalism is false. This, the world isn't just a physical world, even though he's, he, he's an atheist. And he's been quite adamant, saying, I do not wish there were a God. Uh, I, I don't know sort of his explanation behind that, but I think, I think he says, we need to take moral responsibility for our values ourselves and not simply sort of rely on some being out there telling me how I ought to, believe, ought, to, ought to behave or how I ought to live my life. So people want their autonomy and recognize if, if you actually take believe in God seriously, your autonomy, autonomy is limited. You're, there's things you're called upon by God to do. Now these days, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who don't think God calls you to do very much. God will give you peace, and he calls you to be a nice person. There was a a survey done in 2005 of the spirituality of American teenagers. I want to ask the question, what will God require you? Well, God God asks you to be a nice person. Just so that's a good starting point. But that's about what the average teenager would say. And what you expect God to do for you is give you peace. Well, a lot of religions will talk about giving you peace. Buddhism will talk about giving you peace. Yeah, so... Good. Uh, uh, I've broken up sort of the response of why does a person say this in three categories. One, there's the skeptic who says, I don't need God because he's not there. Or if he is there, he can't be known, so I don't need to worry about what can't be known. Um, now, another category are people who are antagonistic. Either they have a, an edge against the Christian faith. Uh, it may be because they don't like uh, the idea of God, or they don't like uh, Christians they've met, or they don't like things the Bible teaches. 
Uh, so there's, I don't need God because I don't want God, or I don't want your God. Some people would say, well, I believe in something, not necessarily God, but I don't, I don't want what you have. <clears throat> and then there are people who are simply pretty content with where they're at. They're not antagonistic with the Christian faith, but they just, I'm doing fine. I don't, I don't need to go to church on sun, Sunday mornings. I've got better things to do with my time than listen to boring sermons. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm fine. So in that category, I'm a good person. So I don't, I don't need God. Uh, <clears throat> here's a list of some responses. We talked about most of these. And I did sort of a color coding on them. I'm a good person. I have no need for belief in life after death. Uh, I'm okay with just saying this is all there is. Uh, belief in God is an emotional crutch. You get that quite a bit. And I can manage myself. I don't need to have some belief in God to help me get by. Uh, no need for fairy tales. Uh, church isn't my thing. God hasn't done anything for me. I don't want God or anyone to tell me what to do. I believe in something, but I want your God. And belief in God has done more harm than good. So we look at all these wars that were done in the name of God. Just get, get rid of religion. And wouldn't uh, civilization be far better? Uh, by the way, people who say, look at the terrible things that are done in the name of God. Actually, it is true that the, some of the worst things people do, they wouldn't do if they weren't motivated by some major ide- ideology. You wouldn't commit suicide flying a plane in the World Trade Center if you didn't have religious belief. But likewise, you wouldn't be someone like Mother Teresa caring for the poorest, the poor in Calcutta, or devoting yourself to uh, people who are in need, for homeless. For, uh, you look at almost all the humanitarian organizations. Almost all of them are founded by people who have strong religious values. So religion is a very strong motivator. The question is what lies behind it. Now, if you go to Jesus and look at Jesus' values, it's pretty clear that the terrible things that have been not done in the name of Christianity are in conflict with what Jesus taught. So if your fundamental values are good, actually religion can be a very good thing because you need motivation. If you get rid of all religion, then you just basically become a pragmatist and do what's going to you know, do what makes you feel good. Sure, being a nice person makes you feel good, but you don't need to go out of your way. You don't need to deprive yourself of things you would really like. Uh, just sort of you, you, you do little good deeds around. Random acts of kindness is fine because they're random. They don't cost me too much. <laughs> but if it's a consistent act of, acts of kindness, you know, that's, that, that's, a different, that's a different story. <clears throat> there is some legitimate criticism that you get uh, from people who are saying that, oh, God, the, 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 the criticism of emotional crutch. Actually, I think someone outside who hears or listens in on what Christians are saying, they'll oftentimes get the idea, and from listening to evangelists, well, you become a Christian because you want your marriage to go better. Or you have anxiety and you want to deal with this anxiety. You need peace. Or there are struggles that you're facing, economic or otherwise, and God will give you comfort and help in the midst of it. And so the message, you should become a Christian to help you over your problems in life. And God does help us with our problems in life. But if you ask the question, why did the original disciples follow Jesus? It wasn't for emotional benefits. They knew full well that it might cost them their lives. And Jesus made it quite clear that in following me, it may cost you your life. Uh, and this re- insisted on a radical commitment to himself. Um, and you think about what caused the Christian faith to grow. It wasn't just emotional benefits which uh, Christians were offering. Um, so uh, there's a book by Rodney Stark, the Rise of Christianity, how the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. 
And his contention, it was the attractiveness of Christians who actually lived out love for others. So Jesus says the greatest command is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Uh, and the second, like it, is love your neighbors yourself. And Christians were doing that. And that, that was a major part of why the Christian faith grew as rapidly as it did. There was a, a Roman writing the end of the first century. And it used to be practiced if you had a child you didn't want, you just abandoned the child. Uh, and he said, not only do Christians not abandon their babies, they take in abandoned babies. Now, why would anyone do that? That makes no sense at all. I mean, just think of the commitments you're having to make for a baby that's not yours. Why would they do this? So it's quite clear the Christian faith was having a profound impact on how people relate to others. Rodney Stark points out that at one point there was a major plague that swept across the Roman Empire. And the wealthy people would flee and try to get away from people to try to keep themselves separate so they wouldn't catch the plague. But Christians actually went out and helped the people who were sick. And he said the Christian faith rose significantly during that time because here are Christians who are really living out. And I asked the question, what is it that would make the Christian faith more attractive? I think it would be helpful for us not just talk about emotional benefits, although they're there, but to say God calls us to a life of service. And yes, it's going to be costly, but yes, it's worth it. When people have done studies on what contributes to personal happiness, and you're thinking about personal happiness in terms of a deep satisfaction with your life. I mean, that's the sense of happiness that really matters. It turns out that one of the most important things is a person believes that their life is meaningful, not just for themselves and for their families, but in the broader sense. They believe that what they've done is overall has promoted the good. They've done what is right. And if a person has that kind of conviction, they can have a deep satisfaction with their life, even if they've struggled a great deal. So happiness in that sense is very much dependent upon uh, believing that your life was lived in the right way. Now, if, coming back to the question, you really can't justify it, it's actually the right way, and not just simply what my society wants, and you believe it's just what my society wants, or even if it's just, well, human nature is this way, and most humans, by their nature, incline this way, that doesn't give you the satisfaction that you've done what's right. <laughs> you just have the satisfaction of doing what most human beings are generally wired for. But no, actually, the satisfaction of believing that you did what was good and what was right is a tremendously important thing with regard to human happiness. So it's interesting to me when I'm talking to atheists or a person who believes there's nothing but the physical world, I say you ought to hope that naturalism is false. Because even if you're an egoist who wants to promote your own happiness, and that's your goal, uh, you're not going to promote your own happiness by setting that as your goal. And if you believe that there's nothing but the physical world, that's going to undercut your chances of happiness. <laughs> so the odd thing is that the people who are pursuing happiness don't find it, that people who don't pursue happiness but pursue what's right actually have a much greater chance of finding happiness. But you have to actually believe that it's right. So you have to you know, come back. I'll, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, I'm going to skip some things here about emotional benefits just for the, the, the sake of time. Um, Someone asked me, why is it that most churches, women outnumber men? That's true in almost every church. I mean, it's not, I'm sure there's some exceptions. But why is that? Well, I think maybe part of it is that we preach the emotional benefits gospel. Now, men have emotional needs even though they don't realize it. 
They're not always in touch with their emotions. Like, uh, I mean, so not all women are in touch with their emotions. So you, you can't sort of do this stereotype across the board. But most men actually find their worth and identity in things they do, the things they're able to accomplish. And I think to sort of downplay the cost of discipleship is actually not a good strategy. If you want young men, guys, teenagers to say, the Christian faith is for me. You know, I said, this is what Christ calls you to. Yes, it's going to be costly, but it's worth it. Um, I was uh, in, in, at the university at the time of the radical movement and demonstra- student demonstrations and all that. It was also the time of the Jesus movement. And it was interesting to me that in the Jesus movement, it was really pretty even, men and women. Well, why is that? Well, in the Jesus movement, you were putting your, your life out there. You're going you know, you're gonna, to you're gonna stand for what you believe. And I think if we actually challenged young people in that way, we would find there wouldn't be as much disparity as we oftentimes see between men and women when it comes to uh, attendance in in church. We also have a very negative, uh, people think very negative about Christian faith. When I was in university, people ask, what's the difference between when I was in university and university students in life now? Well, part of it is that people back then didn't have really an edge against Christianity. They may not believe, but okay, Christianity is okay. Uh, but now a lot of people have a very negative assessment. Now, whether it's about the homosexuality issue, whether it's the, whether it's the uh, caring for the poor, uh, the, the fact that many Christians are unwilling to vote to have tax money go to helping poor people, uh, uh, there's this, this, a variety of things. Um, I don't want to get into politics, but uh, I think Trump has done enormous uh, uh, damage to the gospel by the fact that, that evangelicals are identified with Trump. And I think most evangelicals do not, do not condone at all his sexually immoral life. If they vote for him, it's sort of in spite of who he is. Um, but nonetheless, when, when people look around and say, look, he, the evangelicals are voting for this person who is absolutely immoral and is doing terrible things with the economy and uh, just... I mean, I, it's, it's, it's hard to overcome that when you have that kind of negative images about the Christian faith. We're anti-abortion typically, and I think that's a good thing, but we also ought to be pro-life when it comes to babies who are born. So you don't just care about them before they're born, you care about them afterwards. And personally, where I'm coming from, it's not that the government isn't spending too much money on social needs. It's not being spent wisely. Oftentimes, you can give money to problem, it makes the problem worse, rather than making the problem better. So I think as Christians, we, we shouldn't be sort of adamant, no, no, don't spend any money on welfare, no matter how good the program may be. We ought to look at each, each thing individually and try to figure out, okay, what's, what's the best response? What do, I make, what do I make of this? But the negative impressions people have is, is, a, is a big thing to overcome. Now, people who are content, let me say a few things about that. There was a, a book written some years ago by two InterVarsity staff who are really quite uh, effective evangelists entitled, I Once Was Lost. The basic thesis of the book is that when a person becomes a Christian, it's not just the last threshold, the threshold of becoming a Christian, there are other things they need to, uh, thresholds they need to cross in the way. I, I mentioned this yesterday. But the, the middle one they have here, the third one, is moving from being closed to change to open to change. So how do you help a person who's basically content with where they're at to help them see, no, actually, your life could be much better than it is. And no, you're not quite as good as you think you are. <laughs> we tend to think people out there are bad and I, I, I'm, I'm okay. Well, one way of being able to, I think, get at that 
is to try to be transparent ourselves. Uh, oftentimes, Christians feel like I need to be a good testimony. And feel like, well, if I'm struggling something, I'm not doing very well on something that God has called me to, well, I, I shouldn't let other people see that. Well, no, actually, if you have non-Christian friends and you're honest about the struggles that you have, they'll be much more apt to, open to op- be open to you and say, actually, here's some struggle which I have. Uh, and they, they may have said to you before, I'm fine, everything's fine. But when you start being honest with them, they start being honest with their struggles. You know, no, it's not the case that everything is fine with them. And you begin to talk about those things and become more honest about it and become more open to listening to you about what can, might be done about it. So if they can look at you and say, well, you draw strength, strength from the faith that you have, um, that's interesting to me, you know, making that, uh, that, that connection. Uh, we also need to encourage them to look at Jesus. Telling our own personal story is very important. And people want to hear what our story is, what, what happened with us, what, for, for myself. Uh, but we need to have them look at Jesus because becoming a Christian is becoming a follower of Jesus. It's not just buying into some set of values, Christian values. And sometimes feel like becoming a Christian is buying into some values, but actually it's becoming a uh, follower of Jesus. And I mentioned uh, yesterday that one of the best things we could do is actually get people looking at the Gospels and learning about Jesus and seeing what he's saying and what he's like. Plus, it's a lot of fun. Uh, if you've never tried it, actually, it's when you're not preaching at somebody but just looking at the text and asking questions, uh, that could be a great experience. Animosity. Uh, people can have a lot of negative experiences, and we need to listen to them. Uh, the exclusivity of the gospel. When I was, uh, I don't know if I mentioned yesterday, when I was in uh, Germany about three years ago for an Easter conference, I was doing a seminar, and I had to start off by breaking in about six groups of three apiece. And ask, what are the three biggest barriers, as you see it, to people becoming Christians, or barriers to the faith? And to my amazement, all six groups came up with the same three. They described it slightly different ways, but they came up with the same three. One was the problem of evil and suffering. One was, in various forms, the relationship between science and the Christian faith. And the other one was the exclusivity of the gospel. How can you claim to have the truth? I mean, after all, you're just one religion amongst other religions. Why, why, why should you assume that you've got it right? And whenever anybody disagrees with you, you're the one that has it right. Isn't that just arrogance? Plus, if you believe in hell uh, and you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven, now how can you possibly do that? So there's, there's, there's a lot of animosity against the Christian faith around those things. People sometimes view faith as being opposed to reason which faith goes beyond what reason can demonstrate. But faith ought not to be opposed to reason. So, for instance, if you're thinking about marrying somebody, you ought to have some good reason to believe this is a good person to marry. <laughs> it ought not to be as a matter of faith that I think this is a faith state where this is a good person. So having reasons doesn't eliminate faith. When you get married, it is a faith a step of faith. I mean, after all, there's no guarantees. But you need good reasons for the things uh, that you believe. I'll be giving a seminar in Germany in December on why does God want to limit sex? So sexuality is a big issue. My wife's twin brother is gay, so we wrestle with, uh, with, with that. Uh, sometimes it's uh, people, the violence and death in the Old Testament, something that I've been working on for a while is an essay I'm entitled, What About the Canaanites? 
And it turns out it's a complicated issue. The critics will say uh, God in the Old Testament is commanding genocide. Actually, I'm convinced, no, he's not commanding genocide. But he was commanding was to purge the land of the pagan presence. Now, that three years ago, there was a DNA study done on a tomb, a Canaanite tomb, in Lebanon. And interestingly enough, they discovered from the DNA of this Canaanite, the current-day Lebanese are largely Canaanite. Well, what that means is there weren't just a few Canaanites who fled and migrated up towards Lebanon, what today is uh, Lebanon, back then Phoenicia, but lots of them did. And if, it was gen- if genocide was the aim, then you shouldn't let anybody get away. Pursue them until you find them and kill them. But no, it's quite fine if they leave. But the important thing was that they not be there and influence the people of Israel and have them be following other, other gods and engage in the practices that they were engaged in. In fact, God says, if you do that, I will bring judgment upon you as I'm bringing judgment uh, upon them. Plus, one needs to recognize that actually for Israel to be a light to the nations, it had to keep itself pure. If it didn't keep itself pure, it wouldn't be any light to the nations, and God wanted to bring blessing to the nations through Israel. It's interesting that uh, the suffering servant Isaiah is referred to as a light to the Gentiles. And Jesus identifies himself with the suffering servant, and Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. But it's not just Jesus who is a light to the Gentiles. Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, and the new, the new Israel, those who are followers of, of Christ, Christians, we are called to be a light to the nations. So there was radical things that Jesus was commanding, but there's things in, in it which actually say that the great good which, which was being commanded is, is, was, was very important. It wasn't just simply, well, I want to give special privileges to my people, or <laughs> well, I want my people to simply be doing that. Rather, God had a much larger picture, plus the people in the land were, were really quite wicked. There's a book written by, by Old Testament theologian John Walton, uh, within which he argues that, no, the Canaanites weren't particularly bad, despite the fact that there are a number of verses that make it quite clear that they were bad, and if Israel becomes like them, that God's going to judge Israel if they become like them. But one interesting thing that sort of illustrates that they were actually uh, uh, bad was that the end of Judges, the last three chapters of, ju- of Judges, is one of the most sordid, sort of weird, ugly tales that they have in all of Scripture. It's about a, a Levite who has a concubine and a servant. The concubine runs away and goes back to her father, and the, the Levite comes and spends several days with the father, and the father agrees, yes, the, my daughter can, can go with you. And uh, they, they stick around for several days and leave, but they don't stop in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is still a pagan town at that time. So they come on and they go on to an Israelite town. Well, it turns out they're not, nobody, nobody welcomes them, and the, the person who invites them in uh, finds themselves being the, the people in the town coming and knocking on the door, just like in Sodom. Saying, we want to have sex with a stranger who's, who, who's, who, 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 the, who's come. Or with, the, with, the, with your... With your uh, <clears throat> so so they, 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 they demand... So they actually, the Levite, and the other man, offer, he offers his concubine, and he offers his daughter to this crowd. In the morning, they've been so badly abused that the, the, the concubine is dead on the doorstep. Uh, he cuts up her body and sends it off to the various tribes. Look at this terrible thing that these Benjamites have done. 
the really sort of tale. The Benjamites, rather than saying, oh, how terrible this, this tribe, of, this tribe of, of, of our own people, this is a terrible thing, we will, we will look into it. Uh, they defend the town. So the whole tribe of Benjamin, it feels like what they were doing was justified. Well, how is it that a whole tribe of Israel could become that bad? I mean, basically becoming like Sodom. Well, it's not because, well, they just came up with it. It has to be because there was a lot of corruption of people around them that that's where they got it from. So it's an indirect way of being able to say that it's not just polemic against the Canaanites and saying, oh, they're evil people. You demonize your enemies, whether they're bad or not. But in fact, there's very good reason to believe they were bad, and hence the, the command of God to judgment upon them. Anyway, that was kind of a, a, a tangent. Uh, bridge of the faith to a skeptic. I love interacting with skeptics, so I'm going to say a few things about you can do with a person who says, I don't need God because, after all, he's, he, he's not there. One question you ask when a person says, I don't need God, you, you ask, well, are you saying you don't need God because you're convinced he's not there? Or he may be there, but you still don't think you need God. To what kind of response the person gives. The person might say, well, even if he's there, he doesn't do much, so I don't need him, or something, something, something like that. But there are a fair number of people whose who's, I don't need God is driven by a skepticism, saying I don't, I don't think he's, he, he's there. One bridge to thinking about God is the reality of conscious states. Uh, they, when you take something like the feeling of pain, what is the feeling of pain? From a science standpoint, there is no feeling of pain. There's pain behavior. There's neurons firing. But what is this feeling of pain? And there are a fair number of atheists who would say, well, there is a reality to the feeling of pain, but since there's nothing but the physical world, the feeling of pain must actually just be pain behavior. <laughs> Seems to me, no, when I feel pain, it's not just uh, wincing and you know, saying ouch, but I actually feel something. <laughs> there's some reality to it. But from a materialist standpoint, there really is no such thing as a feeling of pain. Or if there is, uh, I'll come back, it doesn't, doesn't do anything. Um, there is a, uh, this is sort of the, sort of the negative side, uh, before I got that, Francis Crick, Nobel Prize winner, Structure of the Human DNA. He writes, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are in fact no more than behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Who you are is nothing but a pack of neurons. Now, the person who says, I don't need God, you might find out they believe there's nothing but the physical world. You could say, read this quote from Francis Crick and say, do you think he's right? If he's not right, why is he not right? <laughs> I mean, after all, for just physics, it sounds like he's right even though he's saying it in a rather brash, harsh kind of way, we don't like to think of ourselves as simply being a bunch of neurons. We like to think that the person, the I, actually exists. But from the standpoint of neuroscience, the I doesn't exist, the brain exists. In fact, there are atheists who would say, there is no subject, the I, the person who is guiding your life. Rather, different parts of the brain dictate different things you do. So you might think of your life as being sort of the stage of conscious awareness. Well, what you choose to have lunch is determined by one part of your brain. Trying to understand this talk is another part of your brain. But there is no common eye. There's no subject, no self behind it that is the, the, the cause of it. Uh, and it's rather disconcerting. It's not just simply it's a difficult philosophical question, but our own sense of worth and identity as people depend on our taking ourselves seriously, that we really do exist. And it's not just crazy, and it's not just Christians who think we really do exist. Buddhists 
will say the self doesn't really exist because I think that makes it easier to believe that when you die, you just the parts separate. So it enables you to face death with more peace. Well, that may be the case, but uh, Buddhists, I think, really do think that the same self is making decisions now at work, at home. Uh, so I think they think like uh, we do, and that there really is a self who's there. I mentioned earlier Thomas Nagel. He wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, uh, Oxford University Press, 2012. The subtitle was The Grabber. The subtitle is Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Most atheists I know are convinced that the Christian faith is not true because they're convinced that naturalism is true, that there's nothing but physics. That's all there is. And Thomas Nagel, who's a staunch atheist, says it's almost certainly false. He used the term materialism because he wants to say there's nothing beyond nature, so there's nothing supernatural in Thomas Nagel's view, but what we call nature is not reducible down to physics. It's not just atoms and protons and all that kind of stuff. There must be something, some reality to mind, which is part of nature itself, and how to try to bring that back in again. So if you agree with Nagel that, yeah, there really are feelings. They're not just pain behavior. Uh, there really is a self behind it. I really do have some responsibility for what I do. There's strong reason to believe that naturalism, as effective as it may be within the sciences, is not the last word. And a person steps back from believing that, that opens up other doors. Where, okay, well, how do I account for personhood? How do I account for conscious experiences? Is there a mind behind the universe, or is there some, somehow some sort of mental fabric to the universe itself that, that Thomas Nagel is trying to propose, not very persuasively, I would maintain? Free will. I don't think most of the things we do, we really have freedom about. So some people think about free will, everything you do is free. Uh, actually, I think most of the things you do are determined by prior states of your brain, et cetera, just before you did it. But it is crucial if I am actually directing my life in any way, there are points where I can choose A or I can choose B. I met with a group of atheist students at UC Santa Cruz, a person who was a grad student who was a person that I got to know. He invited me to come and interact with a group. And I asked them how many of them believed in free will. There were seven undergrads and then the grad student. The grad student did not believe we have free will. One of the undergrads uh, said we don't have free will. But six out of the seven of this atheist club, secular student alliance that called themselves, believed in free will. Uh, but if you're a materialist, how can you believe in free will? Things might happen simply by chance through quantum indeterminacy. But to think that I can actually choose that it wasn't determined by the state of myself at that moment is a very hard position to maintain if you're a naturalist. Uh, so... We do want to believe that we're responsible. In fact, free will is connected with moral right and wrong. If I could not do other than what I do, then we don't hold the person morally responsible. If a person's brain is such they couldn't act otherwise, well, we try to modify their brain, but we don't say they're responsible for what they did. So our whole idea of responsibility is, is that in a certain situation, you could do either of these two things, and you chose to do one, but you could have done the other one, hence you're held responsible. But moral right and wrong in terms of responsibility seems to vanish if we're just material beings and everything is determined by the past. 
which is rather disconcerting. Again, our sense of happiness and well-being is connected with our beliefs in right and wrong and our beliefs ourselves as persons. And people have actually some control over the direction that my life takes. Okay, I've talked about that. Here's a, my, my wife was on the internet in 2012, came across an entry in, on CNN, and it was entitled, Prominent Atheist Blogger Becomes Catholic. So I went to it, sort of curious to see what I might find there. Turns out there's a woman named Leah Labresco, who is a quite well-known atheist blogger on this atheist blog site. Well, her last blog on the atheist blog site was declaring she was no longer an atheist. <laughs> Obviously, it was her last blog on the atheist blog site. Uh, but the first of her CNN, CNN interviewing her asked her why, and part of her response was, I believe that the moral law wasn't just a platonic truth. It's not just sort of right and wrong written in the cosmos somewhere. I mean, why should I care about that? I actually believed it was some kind of person as well as truth. And she was thinking about, well, what might that be? She was drawn towards the Christian faith and was becoming a Christian. So actually, the motivation around belief in moral right and wrong is a powerful motivator. And there are lots of people around who say, I'm a good person. Okay, what, 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 what leads you to sort of make, make, caught, pay, make sacrifices for what you believe is good? You can be a nice person. In fact, if you're not very nice, you're probably not very happy because you don't have many friends. <laughs> so if you're a nice person, you have friends, and you're typically happy. But that doesn't mean that you're nice to people you don't like. <laughs> so the idea that you should be nice to everyone, love your neighbor no matter who it may be. By the way, when Jesus, before Jesus told that parable, uh, he, the, 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 the question which was raised, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus told the parable. And the, in, in the Old Testament, it says, love your neighbors yourself. That's an Old Testament quote. It's really talking about Jews loving each other. So many Jews would interpret that by saying, well, God calls us to love other Jews, but not people who aren't Jews. So Jesus responds by the parable of the Good Samaritan, and Samaritans hated Jews, and Jews hated Samaritans. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as being half-breeds, and the, the Samaritans viewed the, the Jews as being snobs and being exclusive and all that kind of thing. And there was this strong animosity between the two of them. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is that actually the Samaritan helps the Jew who has been robbed and beaten and severely injured and is by the side of the road. The Jews pass by, but the Samaritan stops and helps him and you know, binds up his wounds and carry, carries him to a, an inn and then tells the innkeeper, when I come back, their expenses, I'll pay for the expenses. So Jesus who was my neighbor? Jesus is quite clearly saying that when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor is anyone, not just the people in your community or the people who are like you. So when you come across something like this, you say, oh, atheist blogger becomes a Christian. And why? Well, this was a significant part of the reason. Also, sometimes people, I said earlier, that people think the science of the Christian faith are opposed to each other. I'm working on an essay right now, so if you put your name down there, uh, when it's done, I'll, I'll send it on to you, which I'm entitling Order of Nature Miracles versus Specific Point Miracles, which are terms I simply made up for the point of this, 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 this essay. Order of Nature Miracles are things which God has to do to sustain the order of nature as we see it. Specific Point Miracles are miracles that God does at a particular time, but are not needed to sustain the order of nature. Uh, an example of an order of nature miracle is Isaac Newton thought that God needed every once in a while to adjust the orbits of the planets. The reason he thought that was he recognized the planets would have a gravitational effect upon each other. 
Uh, so he thought that God needs every once in a while justice so that the, the Earth's orbit will be stable. 100 years later, Pierre Laplace showed that uh, Isaac Newton was wrong. Yes, they have an effect on each other, and yes, the orbit of the Earth does vary over a narrow band, given the influence of the other planets. But over time, they cancel each other out. So the orbit of the Earth really is rel relatively stable. That's something we observe. And the question is, is God needed to maintain the observed order of nature? Uh, Pierre Laplace showed no. Isaac was wrong about that. Another example I heard one time, there was a preacher who was saying that, that uh, science has been unable to account for how cells differentiate, how they become different kinds of cells. So when a human being starts off as a cluster of stem cells, you get this, this ball of stem cells, but at some point, a stem cell will divide and become, say, two nerve cells or something other than a stem cell or a muscle cell. And a nerve cell might divide, and what comes out of it might be different than what the parent cell was. And that's really crucial in terms of your own being able to function. It's not simply enough that you have like half a trillion neurons in your brain. It's a huge number of neurons in your brain when you're an adult. It's not just you have that many neurons. We have the right kind of neurons. Someone have these long axons, which basically connect the different parts of the brain together. So you have to have the right kind of neurons in the right place. Well, how do they know how to do it? So this preacher was saying, science has been unable to account for that. If we were right about that, that would be an order of nature miracle, something that we see in the order of nature which God has to do miracles to sustain. Actually, there's a fair amount they're understanding about it. It's not completely understood, but there's progress being made on understood how cells differentiate. Plus, we know so much about cells other than that, simply how they function, how they divide, that I think it'd be quite strange if, in fact, God has to do a miracle every time cells differentiate, because God is God sort of manually flipping all the genes, so this gene becomes the right gene at the right time. I mean, God could do that, but that would be a massive number of miracles happening all over the place anytime any living organism is developing and becoming something different than the cells are differentiated. So it seems to me that it's actually a good case, given the success of science, that there are no order of nature miracles. But that doesn't tell us there are no specific point miracles, because I think a God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, he could quite easily decide to create an exquisitely ordered universe. I mean, after all, he's all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. And being all-knowing, he knows all the possibilities. He knows he can create an exquisitely ordered universe. Why should we assume, though, of course he wouldn't do that. He would leave things where he needs to sort of manually sort of maintain it. Uh, it's, we're not God, but it seems to me that from a human standpoint, if I were an engineer and I were building some machine, and I could either build the machine where it needs to be adjusted annually, adjusted annually, or I'm building a machine where it's self-adjusting, the self-adjusting solution is the much more elegant one. Well, it seems to me that God is creating an exquisitely ordered universe where he doesn't need to be doing order of nature miracles to sustain it. But that gives us no reason to believe that God doesn't do miracles for specific points for specific purposes. So the success of science is really neutral with respect to the question of specific point miracles. Now, in the paper, I'll talk about some objections. But uh, it, it, it means that if you're going to ask, did the resurrection of Jesus take place, you can't simply point to the success of science, or did the virgin birth of Jesus take place. You can't simply point to how natural birth takes place, because after all, if the virgin birth took place, it would take a miracle. <laughs> but which, so you have to address those by doing a historical investigation. And then that raises the question, okay, how high does your bar need to be? 
but it shifts the ballgame away from science excluding faith in God or being contrary to biblical Christianity by saying, no, actually the Bible doesn't talk about order of nature miracles. It does talk about God doing various things. After all, in the past, people didn't know why it rains when it rains, so people could see God behind it. But nonetheless, Christians and Jews back then believed that God has created a world which is not God. And that's part of why science arose and did so well within the West, because after all, you're not studying something which is sacred. And discovering an order within it is not too surprising, because after all, God's a God of wisdom and order. So science actually is quite compatible with the Christian faith, and the question of whether or not the biblical Christianity is true is whether these miracles, at least the key miracles, actually happen. And those are things they have to investigate uh, uh, within science. Then there's the, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll skip over that, but I said the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. When I do this, I really like if I could do two lectures. The first lecture I call, I title The Case for the Resurrection, sort of what are the facts the scholars agree upon? How does one explain those facts? None of the naturalistic explanations do a very good job of being able to account for the facts. Jesus actually rising from the dead does a much better job of explaining the facts. Now, the facts are things not which Christians believe, but which scholars agree upon. So those are the, the facts that, that, that you're working with. But then I'd like to follow up that lecture with a lecture entitled, But Dead Men Don't Rise. Because <laughs> after all, even if you have no good explanation for the facts related to the resurrection of Jesus, if dead men don't rise, then that can't be the right answer. Well, we just haven't come up with the right answer yet, but saying he rose from the dead, that can't be the right answer, because after all, that doesn't happen. And you ask, well, why is it you say it can't happen? Well, miracles don't happen. Well, how do you know miracles don't happen? <laughs> they typically rely back on science, but again, science isn't answering that question. We have to ask, in particular cases, what's actually going on? So it's that this... I love addressing that, both the philosophical side of it and the, and the historical side of it. Then there's experience of God's presence and providence. So they ended my talk yesterday by talking about a friend of mine who eventually became a Christian. And what was when he decided to become a Christian, he was gone back to the Catholic Church in town. And the priest was reading from the Gospels. And he said, it struck me, it seemed to me that God was speaking to me. Well, I think people do need to have a sense of God is reaching out to them. And we need to pray that that will be the case. And for the skeptic, uh, the skeptic says, well, I never have uh, experienced God in any way. I say, well, have you ever sought to experience God or ever uh, sort of opened yourself to say, oh, God, show yourself to me if you're there? Well, I'm not interested in that. Well, if he doesn't want to become a Christian, it's not motivation, then that's really not the question he's raising. But for the person like my friend who is, okay, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, I still have all these doubts, it really is important for the person experientially to be able to say, okay, this, this makes sense to me. I can't prove that my, the experience that I have was of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, given what happened, how I feel about it, that makes sense to me, <laughs> that God was actually speaking to me. And God can work through that. So let me uh, stop at this point. We have a few minutes for some questions. Yes. maybe a biological explanation, but just that there are so many things in the code that can go wrong. Are you 
I'm familiar with intelligent design kinds of arguments that I think you're pretty appealing to. Yeah, so how, where, does, where does intelligence come from? Uh, I mean, even in terms of how our brain works, there is a logic that we're following. But physics doesn't follow logic. Uh, so what is it that makes your brain come out with the right answers? You might say, well, uh, if your brain does things that align with the, the character reality around you, it'll help you to survive. So therefore, your brain develops in a way where it's attuned to that. But there's nothing about survival related to either believing naturalism is true or that God is there. Those are much bigger questions that don't pertain directly to your survival. And if you're simply wired to believe certain things, if you're an atheist, why should you believe that your atheism is true? I mean, the atheists believe that Christians are wired to believe it's true, but they also say, I'm wired to believe that atheism is true. But it's not a matter of my survival believing that atheism is true. So how do, why should I trust what I believe? So there is an undercutting of the very basis for intelligence that is there. Uh, C.S. Lewis has an argument called the self-contradiction of the naturalist. Uh, there are Christian philosophers who have argued that, that the thoroughgoing physicalism undercuts rationality. Uh, I don't usually go there as a fairly complicated kind of argument, but yeah, that kind of, kind of argument would be given. You, you mentioned sort of there's, uh, when it comes to, say, cellular differentiation, a person might say, well, God's not flipping the switches, but doesn't the very fact that cells become the right cells the right place the right time. How we got to this place, when you talk about the origin of that, doesn't that point to something of intelligence rather than just random processes? Uh, so that's something which I will address, but that's a question about origins of the, of the order of nature we see around us rather than simply explaining the order of nature we see around us. And if God is doing specific miracles within say, the development of life, those are a specific point. They do relate to uh, the order of nature as you see it right now, but it's not things which maintain the order of nature as you see it. So they're like specific point miracles in that they're just specific point. They're not something that has to be done on a regular basis to sustain life as we know it. But God is at work within the process. Yes, question. Yeah, so I not require the continual maintenance. Like the Big Bang is a miracle in itself. Like someone had to set it off. That kind of yeah. So so how one categorizes creation itself? I mean, creation itself is a miracle. Uh, is it a specific point miracle? Is it an order of nature miracle? Well, it's sort of establishing the order of nature. Uh, so it's not quite sustaining the order of nature. It's 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 sort of a different category by itself. You know, it's not self-proving, and the person could say, okay, well, the Big Bang happened. Why did it happen? Even if they say there wasn't time before it, there have scientists who are saying, well, there's a, a quantum reality that doesn't have an ongoing time dimension to it, and within that, you can have quantum events that happen, and the Big Bang was a quantum event that happened. Uh, in fact, many would say that there's an infinite number of Big Bangs that have happened. Uh, but when you start doing that, they're getting off into things which are not testable anymore, 
or at least not testable in, in, in the near future. In the past, people said science has to be testable. If it's not testable, it's speculation called philosophy, but it's not science. But when you're in the boundaries of human knowledge and you're asking, well, there are others, is there a multiverse? You're really talking about something that can't be tested. And you may, the theory might have some elegance to it, but Christians would say there's elegance to the Christian theory. If you're just talking about elegance to the theory, but if you're saying science has to be testable, now you're making exceptions of that when you're, when you're dealing with something that can't be tested in the normal kinds of ways. So it's not as though we, people won't make progress in terms of cosmology, but there's lots of cosmological speculations out there based because we don't know. Uh, it used to be that people would think that the Big Bang was the beginning of time. Now they say, well, maybe there was some sort of time that lies behind that, that, that there were other Big Bangs which took place. So it's, it's, it's really much more complicated because we don't have the answer to it. And a person who doesn't want to believe in God will say, we don't have the answer to it, but this is a really big question. Now, I, if I'd say bringing God is just sort of bringing God into this big gap. But it's not a gap, which is like sort of the gap that Isaac Newton thought was there. Those gaps typically have been shown not to be gaps. So God of the gaps arguments or what sustains the world around us or what, what makes genes, what, what makes cells differentiate, those kinds of arguments have not fared well. But when we're talking about the origin of the natural world itself and the origin of the laws of physics, there we're talking about something quite different where science doesn't give us sort of a, a database from which we can make extrapolations and say who's right and who's wrong. Okay, I've been getting us some rather esoteric things here, but let me just... Uh, uh, close for it, it said, in dealing with your friends, there are things that you can do and looking at. So I suggest that you go to my website if you like, find some things that are there. Uh, I give frequent talks on things that are related to this. One of my aims is to try to help a person who's just presume, of course, God doesn't exist. Of course, it's just culture. To help them see that what they believe, which has taken its place, actually is probably not true. There's good reason to think it's not true. That leaves the door open in terms of well, what is true. And for them then to be able to be look at the Christian faith, one needs to work both on the side of motivation. Uh, do I want to follow Jesus? But also the question of truth, is this something which is reasonable? And you need to work on both of those with our current generation because there are people who would look at the Christian faith and say it's attractive, but so what if it's attractive? It's not true. My wife teaches English as a second language or has taught English as a second language, has a master's in it. And she was involved in a project with a professor at the University of Michigan who's in English as a second language. And my wife had just gone to a women's retreat. And so she was talking with this woman professor about the retreat. And the professor said, you know, sometimes I wish I could be a member of a church. It's not so good, this women's retreat you're on. But I can't because I don't believe it, right? So it could be attractive, but you don't believe it. Then, and then it's just, okay, well, it's nice, nice, but that's not really the truth. So you have to work on both sides of it for people. And as people's worldviews are further and further away from the Christian faith, there's more needs to be done in terms of laying foundations that help them see the Christian faith really is credible. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. We've been talking about some difficult questions and for people who are skeptics and simply think that you're not there. Uh, Lord, give us wisdom. Help us as we read. As was mentioned yesterday, Lord, help us to direct people, say, to articles or chapters or essays that, that might help them. But Lord, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that we have good reason for believing that it's true. Lord, help us as we communicate our faith to others to point them to you. 
not just to the emotional benefits which come from knowing you, but to the opportunity we have to be able to serve you and grow close to you and find ourselves in the midst of that service. Lord, thank you for that opportunity to give to us. Amen.